The following audio is from a sermon series for the season of Advent entitled The Birth of the Peacemaker. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Luke 2, 33-35 and John 5, 1-18. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. And there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, today, actually, actually, it's tonight, really, we're, we're going to wrap up our Advent series that we've been calling The Birth of the Peacemaker. And this Advent series has been a little bit different than your typical Advent sermon series because so far there has not been any nativity, right? No wise men, no shepherds, no little baby in a manger. And that's not because we're trying to, you know, bypass this. We're, we're trying to take a little bit of a different approach because Jesus came, as prophecies in Isaiah 9 said, as the Prince of Peace. And so we're trying to figure out what exactly does it mean. If Jesus is the Prince of Peace, what does that look like? And so what we've been doing the last three weeks, uh, we've been been going throughout Jesus' ministry and sort of studying these these little glimpses into Jesus' ministry where he has these interactions with people that that seem sort of confrontational at first. He he exposes their heart. In fact, that's what the, the, the prophecy, Simeon's prophecy from Luke 2 verses 33 through 35 was all about, that Jesus would come, he would be responsible for the rising and for the falling of many in Israel, 
but he would also expose the thoughts of the heart. And so we're going through, looking, looking at through this lens of, of, of Simeon's prophecy and studying these different interactions that Jesus had. What does it mean for Jesus to be the peacemaker? And there's a little bit of tension here because not only just come as the, the prince of peace, but he himself said that I did not come to bring peace, but I came with the sword. Right? There's a little bit like the prince of peace who comes with a sword that seems like it wouldn't necessarily make sense. But what Jesus is talking about is not necessarily a sword made of steel that's forged, an actual weapon. He's not trying to start some sort of holy war. The sword that Jesus comes with is his word, his message. It's, what, it's the word that Hebrews 4.12 says it, that pierces bone and marrow, it cuts to the heart. It's, it's sharper than any other sword which is exactly the prophecy that Simeon had and what it points to in Jesus. And so we have been jumping from these stories, and we've seen Jesus at work creating a disruption. And it's not necessarily an external disruption, though there are, are parts where Jesus does cross social lines, right? We saw that last week as, as he was at the, woman, at the well with the woman talking to a Samaritan, See, the, the disruption that Jesus primarily causes is internal. It, it reveals the brokenness and the neediness of our hearts. Well, specifically the hearts of the people that he's interacting with. But as we look at that, we can see our own brokenness and neediness as well. But the thing is about Jesus, he doesn't just expose that, right? The Prince of Peace's work would be unfinished if he did not actually bring peace to the situation after exposing hearts, and that's precisely what he does. On the other side of disruption, he offers us a peace that is durable, that is meant for the real world. It's not this flimsy peace that doesn't stick. It's the real deal, a peace that begins internally and works itself outward until all of creation is restored. Now, Jesus We've sort of identified him as this peacemaker. And it's really important to understand the difference between Jesus being a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. There's a, a huge difference there. You see, a peacekeeper is someone who's just trying to maintain the status quo, trying not to create waves, trying to, to keep everybody happy. But we see in Jesus' life, that's not the case at all. He, Jesus is not afraid to offend you. Because Jesus is after a real peace, not some sort of surface level. And you can kind of see this, how this manifests itself in marriage. Right? If you're married to a peacekeeper, you never have any sort of conflict. Everything's okay. And then finally, enough stuff sort of builds up. Enough stuff's been swept under the rug when finally something comes to a head. Right? The, the surface looks calm, but underneath there's a storm a-brewing. See, that's what a peacekeeper Looks like, but Jesus isn't a peacekeeper. He's a peacemaker. A peacemaker looks at conflict, looks, and, and, and might even be willing to create a disruption. In fact, that's what I'm saying Jesus does. He creates a disruption that gives way to a real peace. See, Jesus is a peacemaker. He's willing to step on your toes, but he'll bandage them up. See, Jesus. The peacemaker does this by exposing our hearts, showing us the brokenness, the neediness, and then ultimately offering us a solution. And as we've gone through these different stories, we've seen that there are two very different responses to Jesus. On one hand, there are the people who walk away sad. 
The first week of Advent, we, we looked at the story of the rich, run, run, rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what do I need to do to in, inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, and the story ends with the man walking away sad. We see it also with the story of the woman caught in adultery, where, where the woman has one response, but on the other hand, we see the religious people that walk away from Jesus sort of in, in shame or humiliated. But on the other hand, there are people who respond to Jesus favorably. We see that with the Samaritan woman last week at the well, when after she encountered Jesus, she left behind her bucket and went and told all of her, well, not not really friends, but all of her acquaintances about what Jesus had done, about this man who knew her and loved her and changed her. See, there are people who will reject Jesus and there are people who will joyfully latch on to him. And as people latch on to him, their life changes. Now, their circumstances may not change. But internally, after encountering this peacemaker and letting him have his way, exposing the heart and providing a solution, there is a deep and meaningful peace that's offered. The peace of heaven that surpasses all understanding, that breaks into our life. Now, as we live in a world that's constantly discombobulated, that's tumultuous, that's completely restless, this is good news for us. See, God is offering real people with real fears, with real anxieties, a real peace for real life. And I hope that through this study that that you have an opportunity to latch onto that, maybe see how God has been exposing some of your own heart, sort of confronting you, and offering his grace and his peace through Jesus. And today, the last passage that we're going to look at in this series is not nearly as popular as the other three passages. Now, this isn't because something epic doesn't happen, right? Something epic does happen in this passage. It's not because what happens in this passage isn't important. No, it is important what happens here. Now, I think the reason why this is not as popular of a passage is because it's, it's a complex passage, right? It's not so black and white. Now, although the moral compass of America is declining, we still prefer to make clear distinctions. We want to be able to separate the good from the bad, even if our standard of good is sort of corrupt. It's like in superhero movies, You want to know who the good guys are so you can root for them, and you want to know who the bad guys are so you can root against them. This helps us to determine what side to take. Now, that's why a lot of us dislike it when things start to gray a little bit, right? When the lines of good and bad begin to blur. That's part of the reason why we have such trouble with characters like Walter White and Anakin Skywalker, right? Which camp do they fall into? It's hard to classify them because they don't exclusively land in one place because they're complex. And I think when we examine our own hearts, we'll see that there's not this black and white good and bad, that there is a lot of gray there. There's a lot of complexities in our hearts. And I think that this might be the case with the sick man that Jesus is going to heal in John chapter 5. He's really hard to pin down because on one hand, Verse 5 will tell us that he's been sick for 38 years. And when you learn that, it's, it's hard not to have some sympathy for him. 38 years of dealing with significant infirmities. 
But on the other hand, the story shows us some things about him that kind of makes you wonder, right? You, you look at him and you wonder, man, may, maybe this guy is a jerk. I mean, just for example, right, Jesus is going to heal this guy. He walks away without saying thank you. He doesn't even know Jesus' name. And then later on, he basically goes and he rats Jesus out to the religious leaders, right? What, where does this guy fall? He's not as clean cut as some of the other stories where, where like the woman at the well embraces Jesus and runs off. This guy, he's messy. Now, in John's gospel, as he writes, one of his main objectives is to tell people about Jesus in a way that they hear the facts about him and they're persuaded to believe. In fact, the word believe is used 16 times in chapters 3 through 5, but it is not used once in verses 1 through 16, or 1 through 18. See, this tells us something about this man. There's, there's a big question mark over him, right? Does he believe or does he not? Is he good or is he bad? We simply don't know. But why we can't make a distinction about this man, there is something profound that Jesus is trying to do. So, so let us give our ear attention to John as he teaches us, as he talks to us here in chapter 5. So if you want to open up your Bible, John chapter 5. Start with verse 1. Well, let me set the story here. See, Jesus, Jesus is here in, in Jerusalem. And, and so what, what really John is writing about in this passage, he, he's really telling a bigger story. And, and that story is summed up here um, where, where verse 18 ends. He says, he, he's talking about this rift that Jesus has with the religious people, right? Why the religious people don't like Jesus, why they're set out to kill him. Uh, and the reason here is because, not just because Jesus is breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. So really, this is what the narrative is about. But what I want to do is sort of focus in on some, uh, some of the auxiliary details that John is telling us about here, specifically with this, this man who's sick. It takes part, this story's going to take part in a place uh, in Jerusalem where you would not expect Jesus to be. In fact, you wouldn't expect any healthy person to be. It's a rough part of town, and it's not like it has a high crime rate. Uh, it's just sort of a depressing place to go. It's, it's not a place that you want to go on a date night. You wouldn't just walk through on a stroll. And, and verses 1 through 3 are going to tell us why. He says, after there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now you see, this, this was a part of town where all of the sick people came to hang out. These are the misfits. Now, the, the title that John gives them, in fact, this would be a cultural title that would be applied to them. The, the word invalids says something about them, how the culture viewed them. To be valid means that you're a fully functioning, legitimate human being. But to call them invalid says that there's something less than that. They're not legitimate. They're non-essential. They're disposable. This is, this is the way that society would have viewed these people who are hanging out in this place. 
And I want you to just for a moment imagine this place in your, in your mind. Five separate buildings sort of spread out, all filled with sick people. Now, at this point, all of these people are trying to, to tuck underneath the roof of these colonnades. Uh, they would have been open-walled so, so the breeze could have moved through, which would be good because it, it probably would have been a pretty smelly place. All of these people sort of crammed in, trying to hide under the shade of, of the awnings. But every square inch, you'd see misery. People sick, rashes, blind, lame, you name it. All kinds of infirmities plaguing these people. And next to this, these colonnades was a pool that they called Bethesda. Now, this pool is nothing like an all-inclusive resort where you would think that you're sitting, relaxing, right? This is a, a pool with a purpose. People are there for a reason. At this point, I would say, well, we can turn to verse 4 and, and take a look, but you'll notice in, in your Bible there isn't a verse 4. <laughs> verse 4 has been taken out. There, it goes right from verse 3 to verse 5. That's because scholars believe that what was known as verse 4 was inserted as commentary and was not part of the original text. So you'll see in the footnote what, what they provide, some clarity here. It's an explanation as to why these sick people would hang out by this pool. They believed that God would send an angel down to this pool and he would stir up the waters and the first person to get in the waters after the waters had been stirred up would be healed of whatever sickness they had. Now here, I think the reason this has been excluded is because this is, this is mysticism. This is paganism. We see here, with, with these sick people, there is, as Jews, as people in Jerusalem, they were familiar with the idea that God is one who heals. But here they have mixed in some of this mysticism, this paganism mixed with orthodoxy. Instead of turning to God for healing and praying, out, praying calling out to him, they're turning to these waters to hopefully be healed. Now this might seem bizarre to us today, right? Like some sort of mystical pool could do something like this. But you know what? This mysticism is part of our culture today too. And it may be half-hearted, but it's still present. And I'm willing to bet that many of you have knocked on wood or had a lucky rabbit's foot, some sort of charm. See, it's a subtle form of mysticism, but it's sort of mixed in with orthodoxy. Now, in the midst of all these people, there's one man in particular who had frequented the spot. He had been there for 38 years. And we're not told exactly what his condition is, but obviously, uh, as we read, we'll see it's something that, that um, hindered his mobility. And really what his sickness is, it's, it's not relevant to the story. All we need to know is that he spent 38 years dealing with some sort of major illness. Now just imagine that, 38 years. Now some of us know what it's like to deal with long chronic illness. And this guy in his 38 years, just think of how many people he had watched come and go over those years. Maybe some people have been healed and gotten better. They walked away. I'm willing to bet he's lost a few of his close friends that used to sit there by the pool with him hoping to be healed as well. 
this life would have been hard for this man. Not, not only were the physical ailments, but, but the, the emotional, the spiritual, the relational problems that would come along with this as well. And it would be hard to imagine anyone more hopeless, more depressed than this man. His life was tough. Now it makes you wonder if this guy had maybe given up. Maybe at some point, even though he's beside this pool, maybe he's, he stopped hoping for healing. Maybe now he's just looking forward to death. And perhaps this is why Jesus is drawn to this man out of all the rest. Right? The scripture doesn't really tell us why Jesus singles this guy out, but Jesus moves toward this guy, 38 years sick. This man of misery catches Jesus' eye. Take a look at, at verse 6 here. He says, when Jesus saw him laying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time. And he said to them, do you want to be healed? Now the fact that Jesus is here in the first place is astonishing. This would be the last place that a healthy person would want to be, especially a religious person. Right? Not only do you run the risk of becoming sick, right? if somebody has some sort of a virus disease that you could get and, and brushing shoulders with them, there's also the reality that if you're a religious person, if, you're, if you care about being ceremonially clean, just stepping foot in that place would make you unclean for any sort of religious activities. There's something about this that we need to, to remember See, Jesus goes into nasty places where misfits are because there is no one, there's no one beyond redemption for Jesus. See, we can't forget this. A lot of Jesus' ministry was going to the hard, messy places. Jesus would walk into the places where most people were walking out of, the rooms where people are sick, on their deathbed, the, at the table with sinners, the crooked, the marginalized. See, if we want to follow Jesus, it doesn't mean that we just follow him and live a good moral life. It means that we follow Jesus into the messy, dark places. And with us, we bring hope and light. See, Jesus meets this guy right in the midst of his misery and hopelessness. And Jesus knew all about it. everything that, that vexed this guy. Jesus knew just by looking at him. Maybe it showed on his face, or, or, or more likely, Jesus looked at him like he had looked at others and seen right to his heart. And seeing what, what, this, what troubled this man, Jesus asked him a question that, that might seem bizarre or even dumb. He says, do you want to be healed? Of course he does, Right? 38 years of, of sickness, 38 years of, of being next to this pool, hoping and longing for healing to come. Of course, this man wanted to be healed, or at least you would think. But this man, he does not respond with a, yes, I want to be healed. Yes, I do. He doesn't answer with his heart's desire to be made well. Instead, he answers with excuses. Take a look at verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Now why, 
why would he answer with excuses? Why not, ex- why not answer with yes? Like, it seems like a yes or no question. Do you want to be sick or do you want to be well? And the man can't say. Now, it appears that Jesus' question and this man's response exposes something of this man's heart, right? Why else would Jesus ask such an obvious question? And this interaction is so brief that there isn't a ton of clarity or explanation as to what God, what Jesus is really getting after. And some commentators look at this and suggest that, well, this man doesn't want to answer straightforward because if he knows that he's made well, then he'll have to go back to the workforce. And he's kind of got used to this life as a beggar. It kind of works out for him. But I don't think, I don't think it's that. I don't think that the answer is that simple. See, what I believe Jesus is exposing here is the absence of hope in this man's life. It's a growing absence of hope. It's it's like a black hole that just sucks everything up into it and expands. See, whatever hope this man had initially is slowly snuffed out by his condition. He couldn't see past it. He began thinking, probably at the beginning, right, this is my year, this is the year that I'm finally healed, I get well. And that year goes by and nothing changes and year after year after year. And not only do things not change for the better, he's probably getting worse. His sickness increases. Dozens of years pass by until this man is hope deprived, so hope deprived that he is literally debilitated. If it were not his sickness keeping him down, it would be his lack of hope. It defines him now. Now, psychologists today would call this a form of this form of extreme hopelessness as living with a victim identity complex. Right? Someone being someone who profoundly identifies with a trauma or an illness that shapes their identity and their outlook on life to the point where they can't even imagine their life without this issue. They become almost dependent upon it. It, it becomes a defining factor to them. See, I think this man has become so convinced that change is impossible, that he's been defined by his infirmities, that he doubts anything anything good could possibly happen to him. So much so that he's at the point where he doesn't even try to get up anymore to get to the pool, right, when the waters are stirred up, as if maybe that could work. He's given up. He, he, maybe he's even become skeptical of this pool. His, his hopelessness is so potent that he no longer has a desire to move. There's no point in trying for him. He's convinced it's never going to work. He might as well just give up. And and I'm sure he's asking this question, does God even care about me? Now, when we look at the exterior circumstances of this sick man, it, it could be hard for us to relate. Not many of us are laid up next to a pool trying to get in the water every day. But when we look at his heart... I think that many of us can relate to him, where we have a similar mentality. Maybe our circumstances have influenced us in a way where we have become despondent, hopeless, and wondering if God cares. Maybe it's been a traumatic event or an illness or a pattern of living that's, that's defining you, one that cripples the way that you live. Maybe it's an unhealthy relationship, a series of bad decisions, 
unwelcome desires. Or, or maybe it's just the reality that sin and death are present in your life and causing darkness to set in. See, whatever it is, there is something at the heart level about you that feels unwell, feels sick. Right? We're soul sick. No matter what you try, it seems like you can't move past it. No matter what solutions you seek, they don't work. You feel like you're just, just like this sick guy down at the pool. Now, one of the common things that we try to do is turn to self-help. This is basically the modern day equivalent of going into the pool, right? This guy is trying to get himself into the pool. See, no matter how many positive thought books, blogs, podcasts you read or listen to, no matter how much time you, you, you spend talking to yourself, giving yourself a pep talk, that sickness does not reside. Right? It might change for a little bit. Your, your outlook might shift for a moment, but it'll go right back to where it was. It's non-consequential. Or there's the other route that many people take. It's to hide yourself in man-made religion, right? This is precisely what the Pharisees were doing, right? They take the rules of God and they try to build them out, extend them, and make themselves feel good by making others feel bad at their ability to keep these rules so, so rigorously, right? So the fact that they can look at the people who aren't keeping the rules and dismiss them, make them feel bad, But really, at the core of that, it's an attempt to cover their own insecurities. See, that's what religious people tend to do. And that's why a lot of people are turned off by church people. Right? The religi religiosity, this, this cover-up, just makes other people feel bad. It doesn't offer a solution. And so when you follow these two paths... At the end of them, you'll come to the conclusion that they're both help, hopeless. Right? No matter what you try to do to fix yourself, it won't work. No matter, no matter how good you, you are or how hard you try to keep the rules or put others down so you can feel like you're elevated, it won't work. It won't quiet that inner voice that says, there's something wrong with me. And so at some point, you'll either exhaust yourself trying to find the fix, trying to make the solution work, striving to hide your sickness, or you'll yield to despondence. You'll give up, no longer making any attempts to change, and eventually you'll realize the hopelessness. Or even worse, you'll come to put your hope in something that can't deliver. Now, to wrestle with this, to think through this requires real honesty. And, and, and it, it might seem like it's kind of bleak to say this, right? But it's here in this darkness and in the bleakness where Jesus meets us in our misery, right? That's right exactly where he meets this sick man. And Jesus answers that big question that tends to always pop up right when we're in the midst of darkness, right when we feel like things aren't working out for us. Right? Does God even care about me? Right? Really, that's, that's the question of hopelessness. Does God even 
care about me? See, and the fact is that as Jesus walks through the presence of these sick people, as he takes step by step through these colonnades, that gives us an answer to that question. That Jesus is mindful of the sick. That God does care about you. That there is a solution for your issues. That there is a reason to have hope. It's not in self-help or man-made religion. See, the reason for your hope is that Jesus is before you. Jesus is before you asking you the same question that he asked that sick man. Do you want to be well? See, this question has less to do with us being well physically. It has much more to do with us being well spiritually. Do we want to be whole, right? That's, that's, that's really the idea that Jesus is bringing here. Not, not only this physical, but, but a holistic. Do you want to be holistically well? Do you want a remedy for your soul sickness? See, the question has been extended to us as well, but just like the the sick man, we tend to be hesitant to answer honestly. Maybe we're given excuses. Maybe we're scared of what it would look like if Jesus really came into our life and changed things. Right? We're talking 38 years of the same routine for this man, and, and now Jesus shows up, and the next day his life is never the same. Right? What happens if Jesus were to do that to your life? And, and this isn't just for like the first-time believer. right? Jesus is showing up to every believer almost every day and offering, do you want me to make you well? Do you want me to continue to work at your heart? See, the whole, whole Christian life is Jesus asking that question, do you want to be made well? And what he's doing here is identifying the sin, he's identifying the brokenness that's in our hearts, the sin sickness that we all have, and he's offering us a remedy. In verses eight and nine, they show us just how thorough and how powerful this remedy is. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. See, there's no buffer time here. Jesus has a power that can instantaneously change you if you'd let him. Jesus wants to change you. And his power is so strong that even the most severe of infirmities that are in your life, in your heart, can be mended. He has the power and he's willing to heal you. What's holding you back? What's stopping you from answering? Yes, I want to be healed. I want to be made well. See, this interaction with Jesus and the sick man, it points us forward to something. 
See, Jesus isn't some sort of genie who snaps his fingers and magically makes people better. The real reason why Jesus could heal this man on the spot is because Jesus himself took the sickness into himself. Jesus took the soul sickness that we all have, and he didn't just vanish it into thin air. He, he took it into himself that it was absorbed by Jesus. Jesus became sin sick so that we could be made well, and it's on the cross where Jesus was filled with misery, despair, and ultimate hopelessness, where he cried out, Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know what, do you know what that sounds like? It sounds like, God, do you even care about me? Jesus experienced that so that we would never have to experience that ourselves. Jesus took on the sickness so that by his wounds, we would be made well. So as gruesome as the cross was, as bloody and awful and, and just nasty as the cross was, ultimately what it is for the Christian, it is a beacon of hope for us. Because it's by Jesus' wounds we are healed. It's by his scars, his marks, that ours are made well. So this Advent season, Jesus is asking you, he's exposing your heart, he's asking you, do you want to be made well? And my prayer is that we would say, Lord, have your way. Father God, we thank you for Christ and his ability to, to really show us who we are and what we're like in ways that, some ways that are startling, in a way that we, we don't really want to acknowledge these things about ourselves, yet, yet as he causes this confrontation, as he says, this is what your soul is like, he doesn't leave us in hopelessness, he offers us a great hope that Christ has come, that God is with us now, that he is making us well, by his wounds we have been healed, and so today as we come to the Lord's table, we see his body broken and his blood shed. And what it does, it gives us hope. Hope of the promise that you have made that all things beginning inside of us will be made whole. And so, Father, would you use this meal to mend us today? Would we cling to Christ, that he would be our only hope? In Christ's name we pray, amen.